Blog Talk Radio. There's something outside. What is that? Radio, and this is your host, Julie Wrench, with another exciting episode of On the Shoulders of Giants with the one, the only, Thomas Steenberg. Thomas, how are you? I'm doing just fine, dear. Doing just fine. Good, good. It seems tonight I'm a little outnumbered. We have um, a special guest, also from Canada. You might have known, uh, heard his name before, my listeners. John Kirk the Third is with us tonight. John, how are you? Hi, I'm I'm pretty good to tell you the truth, considering what the world has gone through in the last couple of three months. Uh, sanity is mm-hmm. still there. Uh, sense of humor <laughs> has never disappeared, and uh, all in all, coping with the situation. What else can you do, right? Exactly. That's all you can do. I know with. Uh, I'm not a very I'm not very good at staying in one place for long and it was like my cheese was starting to slide off my cracker, you know what I mean? So we <laughs> we packed up and came here to the beach, you know, <laughs> had to get out. Um but yeah, it's pretty bad and um you know, we're hoping to get to the other side of this here for too long. Uh, yeah, here's hoping so that all your me. listeners yeah. uh, get the same deal as, as us, you know, that we all come out of this unscathed. Uh, we've all got to stick it out together, and it's a great time for people to come together rather than uh, be split apart. So, you know, well, I hope we all mm-hmm. learn lessons from this very sad time. But please go ahead. Oh, yes, I totally agree. That's that's great that you added that in there. We appreciate that. Um, I know that Thomas and you are pretty good friends, and yep. there's uh, some background there. And um, before we get too much into that, though, John, uh, for the listeners who may not be familiar with you, and I'm not sure how that's possible, but for those who may not be as familiar with you, can you give us a little bit of your background on how you got involved in cryptids and what type of cryptids you uh, investigate and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, certainly. Um, my whole um, entrance into the world of cryptids took place in 1987 on the 19th of May up at Okanagan Lake when I was uh, doing a cross-Canada tour after moving here from Hong Kong. And uh, we were up on Mission Hill, which has a very beautiful winery. People like the Gypsy Kings play there and that sort of thing. And uh, my son and a lady who we had befriended on a bus on the way up to Kelowna 
uh, were arguing about something in the water, and the lady's eyesight wasn't that brilliant, to say the least, but my son is a very eagle-eyed lad, and he said to the lady, that is not a boat, that is an animal. And the lady said, no, it's a boat. So the two of them are arguing. So I went over to see what they were talking about, and I look out on the lake, and there's this very reptilian-looking head swimming down the lake about 20 miles an hour, you know, with no bow wave, nothing, just uh, just the head above the water, no neck. And all of a sudden, it made a beeline for the other shore on the eastern side of the lake and went into the heat haze. Well, about 15 to 20 minutes later, after we'd seen this phenomenon and had been discussing it, um, we heard the dogs at the property of the former uh, Premier of BC. He's sort of like the governor, the head honcho of BC, a guy called W.A.C. Bennett and his sons, uh, Bill and Russell. They had this big compound and all the dogs were going mental at something that was in the lake. Well, we turned around to take a look at what was going on and there were five humps sticking out of the water, a very long neck, uh, maybe 10 feet long and a, what looked like a tail section behind. It was just lying there on the lake, and then for two or three minutes it just uh, was motionless, and suddenly it just slowly submerged, leaving an oil slick on the surface of the lake. Mm. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. So, you know, this prompted me to think, well, why isn't this catalogued um, in any textbook, um, any science book? And I, I, I made some investigations and inquiries into the nature of this creature. They call it Ogopogo up here. The native people have known mm. about it for centuries, and they call it Nahaha Itk. Well, that got me thinking. Well, we need to we need to investigate this thing and find out exactly what this is, because now that I've seen it, it is not a legend. It's not a myth. It's a reality. And while I was at it, I realized that um, you know who's looking into Sasquatch. I had heard about Sasquatch, and uh, had had read about it even before I moved to Canada, and. I thought this was really odd that you have two unknown uh, members of the uh, animal species out there in this province, and nobody's looking at it from a scientific point of view. So I was on my way to Ontario, where I went to live for a year, but after a year there, I just had this hankering to come back to British Columbia because it's much nicer. And the second bonus to that was the fact that I could start making earnest inquiries about these animals. Um, mm-hmm. And so I came back, and within a year, we had formed the British Columbia Scientific Cryptozoology Club amongst Dr. Paul LeBlond uh, from the University of British Columbia. He's the head of the, he was the head of the Ocean Sciences Department there. And Jim Clark, who was a, a cryptozoological investigator, writer, and inquirer. So between the three of us, we formed this organization in 1989, and uh, we've been going for 31 years. And during that time, I've investigated lake cryptids all over North America, uh, in the British Isles. I've also been um, involved in lots of Sasquatch excursions here and down in the United States. And I've done um, two expeditions to Africa to look for this large reptilian animal in the jungles of uh, Cameroon and the Republic of Congo that they call Mekele Mbembe. And on each of those trips, I went with my good friend, uh, Dr. Bill Gibbons, and we spent a lot of time uh, searching around lake, uh, sorry, river systems down there that are so far away from civilization. The only people you ever see up there occasionally is some intrepid uh, person who, who comes up there and tries to net these exotic fish that are in that area. But the only other people that come in there are elephant uh, poachers and 
uh, nasty dive mm. and smugglers because it's so remote and dangerous. Nobody else will go out there. So we've done that wow. twice, but I'll never do it again. I've had enough after two expeditions. <laughs> And I'd rather do most of my investigations here, particularly in BC, because the the cryptid content in this province is massive. Not only do we have Sasquatch, lake creatures, we've got things that they call the giant black salamander. We've got an ocean-going cryptid called Cadborosaurus. So BC is the uh, center of the cryptid universe, and that's why Thomas and I live here, because literally within well, 45 minutes from where Thomas lives and an hour and 15 from where I am, we're right in the middle of Sasquatch country. It takes next to no time mm. to get there. And we've made good connections wow. with people, uh, people out there. You know, uh, Thomas can get in virtually anywhere, and I have good connections with the native people. So uh, it's a very fertile and wonderful place to search. And Thomas will tell you himself that, you know, many of the excursions on the west side of uh, um, Harrison Lake offer the most spectacular things you've ever seen in nature. It's just gorgeous beyond belief. So, you know, when somebody tells me, why don't you go down to Northern California and look at Bluff Creek? Well, people have been there and done that, and there are far less sightings than there are up here. This is the fertile place, you know, to, to sow your seeds and reap the harvest at the end of the day. It's just amazing. That's why I'm still in BC, but unfortunately, at some point, we'll have to go. Hmm. Wow. I'll tell you what, that's interesting that you um you were in the Congo twice and yep. when you guys were there, did you see anything unusual or No, but I talked to on both uh trips because I can speak French. So I spoke to um uh, the Bantu people, who are the normal-sized humans, and I spoke to the pygmies there too about their experiences and what they had seen. And these guys were absolutely brilliant. We go from village to village, and we had these books with pictures of all kinds of different animals, right, in there. And we would show them pictures of things like a wolf, and they'd say, oh, maybe this is a dog. We'd show them a picture of a bear, and they had no idea what a bear was because they don't exist in Africa. But when we flipped mm -hmm. the page to the one where there are sauropod-type dinosaurs, they would all point out and say, that's Michele and Bembe, without any prompting from us. So, you know, this was something that was was consistently confirmed. Now, on the second uh, expedition up to the falls of Inki on the Jar River there in the middle of bleeding nowhere, uh, it takes uh, approximately 16 hours to get there, right? Eight hours overnight, eight hours to get there. The return trip's much faster because you go with the current. But... Um, but, uh, Bill wasn't feeling well, so he and I were staying at the campsite while the other guys went up to explore these falls. And while we were there, we heard this bellowing come from the middle of the river, and it was like no sound we've ever heard anywhere. Wasn't a hippo, wasn't an elephant, wasn't a troop of chimpanzees. There are no rhinoceri up there. It was an animal that was in smack dab in the middle of the river making this hell of a noise. And I had remembered that um, somebody else had described that noise to me at some particular stage during one of the two expeditions and said it sounded like this. Well, we were hearing it, but we couldn't see it because there was a, a bunch of trees that went out to a headland, and it was thick, dense forest that we couldn't even negotiate. And when we finally decided mm -hmm. that we're going to try and get around, even if we fall into the river... Um, the other guys came back, and the loud engine of the dugout scared this thing away. Either it submerged or it may have come ashore. 
or it may have gone back down the river because they couldn't see it. They also were blocked. Um, and what is the irony of all of this is that one of the native guys said, look, there's a guy we know in the village that we're going back to where base camp was. And he said the Senegalese guy had heard this thing and had seen the thing make the noise, right? He said it was a creature with a long neck stuck out of the water, very reptile-looking, and it made this noise. So when we finally got back to the village, um, the guy happened to be right there. So we had a chat with him and and talked to him, and he said, can you can you do the sound? And I gave him a, you know, a vague approximation of what it was. And he said, yeah, that's exactly what I heard. Well, just last month or the month before, um, our French colleague, Michel Ballot, who we went out with on the second expedition, he and the guys were in the uh, – they were about eight hours south of the falls at an overnight camp um, at a place called Cholet, which has a bunch of really perilous rapids that you have to negotiate. Anyway, they're sitting around a campfire filming each other, and suddenly the noise comes up in the background from the middle of the river. So they recorded it. They were lucky. They got it. But I said, yep, that's what we heard. That is exactly what we heard. But none of us have seen the animal, but Bill and I heard it, and now the French guys have heard it on top of us. So it's a a pretty amazing occurrence. I would say so. Now, when you say that they haven't recorded, is that something that they released publicly? Yeah, you can listen to it. It's on Facebook. There's a Facebook page run by a French uh, documentary maker who went with them on this trip, right? They went out there for 47 days, I think it was. And that was murder because by the time they came back, they were ready to die. They they decided mm-hmm. to walk back. Now, it, as I told you, it takes 16 hours to get up to the falls. They decided to walk all the way back. And it took them approximately 30 days to do it. It was insane. I cannot understand mm-hmm. how they did this. But you can hear that roar on that page, and it's called The Explorer, and it's a documentary. So your listeners can avail themselves of the opportunity to listen to this thing because there is no sound like it. It's not a lion. Mm. It's not another a jungle cat, uh, wild boar, or anything that you, you find out there, or an elephant. Um, it is absolutely unique unto itself, and I'm at a loss as to what it is, but I think it is Michele wow. Bembe. Wow. Well, the locals are telling you that they've heard that, and they're pointing to the pictures of these um, reptilian-type things with the long neck, and they're like, yeah, that looks like it. That's it. I mean, that's, yep. that's kind of uh, some coincidence. Oh, yeah, and then they were telling us about other things that were there we never even heard of, what we would call the African version of a, of a Sasquatch, but this thing is vicious. Um, they call it the Dodu, and this is found in south uh, western Cameroon, across the river from the Congo. And I'd been uh, talking to some of the pygmies while we were trekking through a forest on the first expedition, and um, they said, no, we, we can't hang around here because there's a Dodu around. So what, what the hell is a Dodu? And they said, well, it's this thing that looks like a man, but it's all covered in hair. And it's absolutely mm. vicious. It attacks people, and it absolutely hates gorillas. And the guy, uh, guy told me that um, when they encounter a gorilla, they will fight it and kill it. Then they'll rip it open, and they'll let maggots infest, and they'll eat the maggots. And I thought, this is the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. 
But I talked to a guy whose father had actually hunted one and killed it, you know, with a spear and brought it back to the village. Uh, and I said, well, where is it now? And nobody knew. But suffice it to say, that was a story. And we talked to other people on the second expedition, a completely different place. And we said, you guys ever heard of the dodo? And he says, yeah, it's in the cocoa forest behind us. And we, I said, what? And he said, yeah, we oh. see it from time to time. It's pretty elusive, but it, it looks like a, a cross between a man and a gorilla, and it walks on two legs and is completely covered with hair. Now, that's a, the great differentiating thing between humans and gorillas. As, a, as we all know, gorillas are quadrupedal uh, knuckle walkers, and these things are upright on two legs. So um, that was an eye-opener for us. And it was funny because I think how it happened uh, later on back at the base camp on the first expedition was that we flipped, a, we were showing the pictures of McKelly and Bembe, and then at the back of the, the, the uh, binder was a picture of an animal called the Kalanura, which is like a dwarf Sasquatch from the island of Madagascar, mm. which appears in uh, uh, Lauren Coleman's seminal Bigfoot book. And they looked at it and they said, Dodo. And I said, what do you mean, Dodo? I said, it's very small, three feet tall. And the guy said, no, this thing is taller than you. You're two meters. This thing is slightly oh. bigger than you, and he's wider than you. So we, we finally got an idea of perspective of, of, of how large this animal was. And having encountered two separate groups of people who knew about this thing made it uh, really clear to us. They weren't talking about a myth. They were talking about an animal that frequents that southern region that flows all the way from the Ngoko River to the Bumba River and the Jar River, maybe even as far east as the Sangha, which leads into the Congo. Um, it was a it was a wild story, and we had to be vigilant every night because the people were pretty panicky mm -hmm. about that. The dodo could come into the uh, settlement and what have you, but uh, we didn't encounter anything uh, of the like on that particular expedition the first time or the second, except for very very frightened people who told us his story. Oh, wow, I I have never heard of that particular creature, and to think that it taller than you and aggressive um no i <laughs> i don't know that i'd want to see that yeah and that isn't the only one on top of that um the pygmies were telling us about this thing that looks like a snake but it's not a snake because it's got two forelegs okay and this thing is called a yoli and the yoli is a tree climber and it traps things like birds and eats them and sometimes it'll take small forest deer and what have you and electrocute them. I said, what do you mean electrocute them? He says, this thing has electrical discharge. Now, we know that the Amazon has electric eels. So now we have mm -hmm. something that is possibly semi-aquatic that emits electrical charges in the African jungle and is pretty mobile because it can climb trees. I don't know how it does it. They just told us it could do it. Um, and quite a few of these guys had had heard about this from their parents who had encountered them. A lot of these things aren't in the forest anymore as uh, mankind starts to incur deeper and deeper into it. Mm. We've now mm -hmm. heard that the Chinese really want to go into that region because there's possibly diamonds and gold there, and uh, China's influence on Africa today has to be seen to be believed. I mean, honestly, uh -huh. I couldn't yeah. believe... 
after the first trip there in 2001 and when we went back again in 2012, uh, how many Chinese I saw in the capital city of Yaoundé, Cameroon, all the way down to the border region where we were where nobody else goes. So we knew that um, if there is a Mekele and Bembe out there, its days are numbered because uh, mineral and wealth um, exploitation is going to take place on a massive scale, as is hydroelectric power on those river systems. It would generate huge quantities of um, electricity because all these rivers eventually f uh, flow into the Congo at some point. They converge, so they're all in the Congo basin. And uh, imagine how much money the two Congos in Cameroon could make from hydroelectric uh, things like they have on the Zambezi River down in Zambia and uh, uh, what was the former Rhodesia that we call Zimbabwe. All this sort of mm. stuff is, is happening. And, my gosh, if McKelly and Bembe are still around, which they probably are in very small numbers, they traverse a massive swathe of Africa. Where we were, it's the size of Florida, okay? It's that big. And um, we just have no comprehension as to um, the devastation that can be um, wrought on that area by mankind as they go and try and extract minerals and gold. And, um, you know, there's lots of palm oil and all that other crud out there. We've seen what that's done in Indonesia yeah. and has imperiled the uh, orangutan and the Orang Pendek. We have all this sort of stuff going on now in Africa, and it just breaks my heart that human greed yeah. again is going in there and destroying everything in its path. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with you on that. It's um, it's very heartbreaking to think that um, the greed outweighs everything else that's on this planet. And it's always you know, the environment and the creatures thereof that pay for this, and it's sickening. And we'll pay for it eventually because, you know, um, we have green lungs in Africa, um, in, in parts of Russia, Canada, and the Amazon that are keeping this world alive. The more deforestation that takes place not only hampers the existence and the ultimate survival of animals, it eventually affects humans. And we are on a pathway to suicide uh, by constantly, um, you know, uh, destroying these resources that are the very breath of our lives. It's just shocking, beyond belief. Yeah. Wow. Thomas, have you got any input on that? Oh, yes. Like I said, one of the worst things uh, now is the way they exploit, especially countries, poor countries that don't have environmental protections in place and stuff, and they're just desperate for money any way they can get it. <laughs> I mean, in Africa and the Congo, former French colonies, the Chinese come in, and they just rape the land. I mean, uh, what, what, and no one, no one can do anything about it, and usually by the time someone does anything about it, it's, the damage is almost done. I completely mm -hmm. concur with you, Thomas. That's that's what it's like. Um, and then, you know, the, the old colonial powers have basically abandoned everybody to these devices. And it's sad because in the end, you know, Africa gets a temporary, uh, a temporary form of wealth, but there's no wealth in the long run because you sold your soul to another country. Right. It's really sad. 
And, I, you know, Africa is a country, it's a continent, but so many countries are doing that. It's it's absolutely pathetic. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, I could talk about that all night because it's just, and it seems like there's something new all the time. You know, something that they're doing um, in a new area, and you're hearing about all these species that are going extinct, and it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's yeah, well, we're, on really borrowed, we're really on borrowed time, but to move on to more pleasant things, you know, uh, fortunately here in BC, it's fairly well preserved. There's common sense up here that we do have necessary logging, and then we also have uh, reforestation, and we also have preservation uh, that helps out. That's why I think BC is very mm-hmm. forward-looking in that regard. And it's particularly interesting because Thomas will tell you this as well. Um, Sasquatch sightings aren't as abundant as they used to be down in this area. But what I'm finding is that uh, from time to time I'll read um, reports from the native peoples up by Bella Coola, Bella Bella, Clem to where Bob Titmus was back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. And they continue to have these encounters, including um, I just retired yesterday from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Um, after a 19-year career there. And I was reading stuff the other day about a corporal up in uh, northern B.C. He was an indigenous guy, and he's driving his police car, you know, patrol car, and runs into a Sasquatch on a road up by Kispiox or someplace like that. I can't remember. Maybe it was Kispiox, maybe it was New Hazleton. But even coppers are seeing Sasquatch up there. And we continue to have activity down here in, in uh, southern B.C. as well, which augurs well for the future. Yeah. Now, Just Thomas, you... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, Thomas, yeah, and you to... and Thomas have been out to the field before together, correct? Yeah, on... On a number of occasions, um, I value mm-hmm. Thomas very much. I've known Thomas since 1997, right? Um, we first met at the International Sasquatch Symposium at the Vancouver Planetarium all those years ago. And when myself um, and a bunch of other people, this is the, 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 it's incredible after 30 years of looking at this bloody thing, we ran into one uh, in 2017 at Sasquatch Provincial Park, right by the entrance where people's cars go by. This thing was standing up on a hill. So I said, there's no better person in British Columbia than to get Thomas Steenberg, who we've done things together, but I want him to come out and audit this thing, okay, to be critical and to be questioning about the whole darn thing. So Mm -hmm. four of us saw this almost nine-foot-tall, unknown uh, hominid, standing between two trees, moving from side to side and swaying and lifting its arm in response to a human gesture. And then it walked away. It made this loud, blood-curdling scream. And then a couple of minutes later, there was another one from the opposite direction, this very loud roar. So we had vocalizations and stuff like that. So um, after this was all over, we decided to go up to another area Uh, where they've had uh, possible encounters in the past, and we were sitting up there, and one of the guys wanted to call blast. Call blasting's not my favorite thing to do, but okay, let's go do this, you know. I prefer other things, you know, like tracking. Tracking's my favorite. But um, we didn't have much success there, and the guy says, why don't we go back to where we were earlier today and see if this thing's still there? 
And uh, I said, well, f- I, I don't think that's likely, but, oh, we'll go and give it a try. So we drove back down to this thing about eight kilometers, nine kilometers away, and we, uh, we, we arrived back where we were, and we pulled out um, thermal imaging equipment. And I noticed that, that suddenly there was a big flare of, of light, and I had the, um, the flare, not the flare, it's a fireman's thermal thing, and I couldn't hold it anymore, so I gave it to my wife, Winona, and I stood behind her looking into the screen, and all of a sudden, the thing that had given off that flare stood up, and it was massive. It was, uh, the, the head was on the shoulders, long arms and what have you, and our mate, David Winter, had um, plugged his video camera into this thing to record anything, and it failed. I couldn't believe it. It failed when that happened, and we couldn't get it, but we all were looking at it because it had, we had seen the flare, and everybody was gathered around, Jason Zacherson, Kenneth Jaholski, David Winter, Winona, and myself, and we're all looking at this bloody thing through um, thermal imaging, and it gets up, and it walks up the hill, and it did a scissors movement. It went to the left, and then it cut back across to the right, and it went back to the left again and went up to the top of the hill. Now, we don't know how um, stealthy this thing was until uh, shortly afterwards it showed up in a depression a little further up from where it had been the first time, and the head was moving around. And then it took off, and again, we, could, we didn't see the whole body. We saw the top of the head, and, the, and it was moving off. Um, David didn't realize until he looked at the uh, video um, a a few days later that we actually caught it walking across the top of the ridge at high speed in pitch blackness. Now, remember, everything is pitch black, and this thing has eyesight like, I don't know, like a raccoon or something, because it was able to see its way through all kinds of obstacles and hassles and everything else, and it got up to the top of the hill. So here we are thinking, uh, um, my gosh, where's this thing gone? We persisted. We hung around for a while more, but it didn't come back. Now, what ate at me is this. I knew, like Thomas has, uh, John uh, Green and Rene de Hinden, two guys that spent 50 years looking for these bleeding things, and neither one of them ever saw one. And suddenly, here we are in 2017, and I have seen something I thought I would never see in my life. So I said, the only person that can bring perspective to this is Thomas Steenberg. So the next day, I got a hold of him and said, look, this is what happened to us. A few days later, we're up there with Thomas auditing the whole scene. And we're walking up to the, 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 through bush and crap like that to get up to where this thing was. We found the exact location. Thomas had the presence of mind to bring a marker pole with a pylon, and it's still there three years later where we saw this thing. Wow. And we looked around, we looked around for tracks. And uh, my wife were known as a natural tracker because she's of Native American origin, right? And, and uh, she had had experience also in Alberta where she tracked stuff all over the place in the bush up there, right? So Winona says, guys, there are tracks here. And Thomas and I couldn't even see them. And she said, here, put your hand in this. And there they were. We found them. And we had Thomas cast all of them. He and I measured them. They were um, step lengths of uh, 61 inches at one point. And we had the whole thing audited by him because I trust him. And he says, sounds like you guys had some kind of an encounter with something unknown up here. And I I like that. That's what I want to know from him. We didn't see another human being that was nine feet tall wearing a fur coat. (laughs) We didn't see something 14 inch feet, right? 
and and Thomas was very objective about the whole thing, and we appreciated that. You know, um, that's the kind of expertise that he brings. He's critical. He's sharp. Just the facts and only the facts, and we value that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the incident he's talking about occurred uh, January 28, 2017, roughly about 4 p.m., wasn't it, John? Yeah, about half past four, thereabouts, yeah, yeah, yeah. close to that. And, and you, you know in the wintertime here in B.C. it gets dark rather early, so the sun was was setting quite rapidly. They actually all stopped by on the way out on this to talk to me for a little while. We all met at Rocco's Restaurant, but they already had a full load, so I, so it was decided I wouldn't go along on this trip, something I've been kicking myself for ever since. And, <laughs> yeah, I remember. They were stopped by the gates. The entry gates were, were closed, uh, waiting for another man to join them, Jason Sarkazian. And, uh, and while they were waiting, that's when they noticed this figure up in the trees uh, that they really, it was more like, looking through shadow and stuff, they could see something moving and kind of reacting to them. And, uh, well, I, I didn't go up there with them until February the 1st, which was just a couple of days later. And while we were up there looking around, Winona, who's, uh, who's uh, up for, as John says, a First Nation defender, is very good at tracking game. And she spotted this trail right in the area where this thing had been, where it looked like, Footfalls had gone down either by something or someone. Wasn't sure which. But Winona could spot this. And, and she got to a point, and I, and I looked at her, and I, even, I was videotaping it at the time. I said, which direction do you think it went? And she said, I think it went down that way. And that made sense to me because there was this large mound of, of earth in between where it was and where the, our observers were down the roads. So it seemed to me like, okay, that's it's trying to put dead ground in between itself and who's observing it. And I looked a little further down where I nose was pointing, and that's when I found two prints in, in a, uh, an area where the ground was a little softer and it was going downhill, so its foot impacts were deeper. And we found a good set of tracks right at that point. And wow. John and I measured them. We measured the stride. We measured the prints, and we ended up casting two of them. And uh, it definitely proved that, they, as far as I'm concerned, there was something there. And, and you're yeah, saying they, that the the prints were 14 inches long? Yeah, they right. were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 14 inches long, and the strider step was immense. So it appeared that at this point, whatever it was, was moving rather rapidly, probably trying to put some distance between itself and the people that were yeah. looking at it. Yeah. And it was heading back in the direction it had come from, and then it turned back around and went the other way uh, because we saw it moving in that direction. So it did about face, return, and that's where all these footprints were laid when it did the about turn, and then it moved back in the direction it was originally heading. But to tell you the truth, you know, one of the weird things about it was that Winona was standing behind me um, when we saw this thing standing between the two trees. And while a human's shoulders can be seen within those two trees, the shoulders of this thing could not. And they were much higher up from where we were. When Thomas and I were up there and he said, where did you see the head? I said, oh, it's got to be three feet higher than where the pole was. And that's nearly uh, eight and a half, nine feet. Winona had, had, had come up behind me when we had had it lined up between the two trees and she could see it. 
and she sort of did a, a native peace symbol with her hand. Uh, it's a greeting, she says. And the thing that we were looking at lifted its right arm up, not in the same gesture, but sort of a movement upwards. And at that point, I could see the hair trailing from the arm. It was like it was hanging down from the arm. Not like you see um, in Patty in the Patterson film, but that could be sexual dimorphism, males and females having a variety of differences, or it could be a special difference between B.C. and uh, Northern California and other parts of the Americas. We hear similar descriptions, but not necessarily exactly the same. But I remember seeing that hair hang down from the arm from as far down as we were. It was the freakiest thing you'd ever seen. It was like looking at Chewbacca from Star Wars. That, that's an apt description wow. and an appropriate one, I think. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> you know, what gets me is when you said that there was, you said there was no neck. It was just like the shoulders and then the heads on top of the shoulders. Oh, yeah. In both instances wow. during the daytime sighting and the uh, evening sighting through the thermal imager, the head was set directly on the shoulders. There was no evidence of a neck whatsoever. And when we caught that small snippet of two seconds of it running at the top of the ridge, the head is clearly set on the shoulders there as well. Even though it's not particularly distinct, yeah, it's pretty clear that there's something up there with, with no neck running about. And, you know, this wow. is good because it corroborates what other people have seen for me. You know, but a lot mm-hmm. of people, right. you, know, you know, you see Patty, other people's descriptions and stuff like that. And there's a lot of talk about this kind of thing. You know, Thomas and I are a bit different from a lot of other uh, Sasquatch researchers who don't give as much credence to wood knocks, howls in the dark, and nests and all that kind of thing, because both of us really believe that unless there was a Sasquatch that was seen in the vicinity and all this stuff happened, you know, it could be a, a variety of other reasons. Uh, but that night, all the stars aligned in the sky. Not only did we see this mm-hmm. thing, we found the prints, heard a vocalization, but we didn't hear any of this wood knocking stuff, right? You know, I mean, a lot of people can uh, put, uh, subscribe to the notion that this is a Sasquatch. Well, nobody's ever seen a Sasquatch actually hit a tree, okay? I've looked through all the BFRO no. reports, other people's reports. This is all kind of perhaps um, supporting evidence if you've seen a Sasquatch do it. But without a Sasquatch out there, what's the point, you know? Uh, there are howls of people here in the dark and what have you. Uh, as Thomas will tell you, you tell them the story about what happened to us uh, back up by Tapadera Estates. <laughs> Where? You remember when we were up on Morris Valley Road, you, me, Ken Christian, Jerry Matthews, we went in search of whatever it was that was making the howls up by the, uh, whatchamacallit, the trailer park up there. Remember the story? Oh, you, you mean the one where you lost your knife? <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, t- tell them the story of what that was and how strange sounds in the dark do not necessarily equate with Sasquatch. Well, yeah, well, we were out there searching on the Chehalis Flats uh, because uh, there was a... Uh, a series of noises recorded there back in 2004 and 5 by uh, uh, a couple who lived in the old trailer park there. There's now a whole new housing development there, but really at this time it was just getting started. And uh, 
we, uh, John and I, when uh, we were searching all along through there, uh, somewhere he lost his knife. Sorry to mention that again, John. And uh, we ended up down by by the Chehalis River under the bridge, and we got in this long conversation with. Uh, there was a film guy there, wasn't he, John? What was he from? That, that was the other time. That was the other time we did that. Oh, okay. Yeah, because we were up there with Jerry and Ken that one time, and then with that uh, Washington, uh, University of Washington film crew the second time. Yeah, we heard this noise blared out. God knows what it was. Yeah. Uh, but again, I, my my policy on that has always been a noise in the dark is just that. Unless you saw what did it, there could be other explanations for it. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. But it, it was an interest. It was interesting. How, oh, by the way, John, I did go back on my own and retraced our steps trying to find your knife for you, and I found it. Never found it. <laughs> no. It was probably used in some homicides. Got my DNA and fingerprints all coming out to me. <laughs> but yeah, John, tell them what happened with those noises. Yeah, I'm taking taking John to some of the classic sites here in British Columbia, like the Jocko Tunnel, where the alleged Jocko capture occurred. Uh, taking John to the uh, Ruby Creek location, the 1941 Chapman incident, uh, where that occurred. And we've gone out back in, in back up Ruby Creek, where the bear hunter thought he had an encounter in September 2008. Uh, yeah, we covered a, a fair bit of ground together. Wow. Yeah, and it's always fun because um, uh, Thomas is a naturally entertaining fellow. He's always got great stories, not just about Bigfoot, but about his life in the Army and stuff like that, people he's encountered. It's always a blast. And then, of course, he's got a good appetite, which is something we like. And uh, we'll have we'll eat with uh, Thomas either at the Sasquatch Inn or down at Rocco's Diner and Cafe in Mission, where he lives. And it's always fun. There's no such thing as boring Sasquatch hunt in BC. It doesn't exist, you know. There's always something that catches your fancy. That's why BC people are out all the time, you know. We know Jason Zacherson and his crew from the BFRO. They do a lot of stuff up on the west side of the lake around uh, Mystery Valley and what have you. Um, there are other people that we, we've dealt with over the years, and it, it's always entertaining. Good people like Brad Trent and uh, the other guys in Thomas's crew, and, and, of course, Bill Miller with his incredible Sasquatch Country Adventures Tour. Um, this place is just steeped in the richness, the culture, and the history of Sasquatch. And if anybody wants to learn anything, come out here, because not necessarily from the people, but from the environment. This is why Sasquatch mm -hmm. thrives here, because there are so many abundant sources of food, massive areas of cover, and uh, an environment that is very, very good at sustaining wildlife. My gosh, run into bears all over the place, uh, see deer. And if you go up uh, by the west side of the lake, there's Roosevelt elk that's been introduced. It, it's an amazing place to be. I would suggest to anybody, no, don't go to Bluff Creek, California. It's really hard to negotiate around there. And that's best left to the people who have already got a project going there. But come up to BC and do a sort of adventure holiday around Harrison Hot Springs, Ruby Creek, uh, up on um, uh, Wallyatch Mountain where Jones Lake is, where Renee did the famous uh, Kokanee commercial. All those areas are fantastic, and mm -hmm. it's it's so abundant. Hmm. And always, 
It sounds like Always. I need to get up there, yeah, it sounds like. I think it is. Once this COVID business is over, I would strongly recommend that you guys come up here. Don't bring your guns because they're not allowed. Uh, bring your cameras, <laughs> shoot only pictures. And um, I, I tell you, it's it's an absolutely amazing thing to do. Uh, come to British Columbia and appreciate the Sasquatch. Um, where we are, we're very lucky. It's in abundance. But w- I hope that before I leave BC to move to America, I will go up to that Bella Coola, Bella Bella, and Clem Two area where people continue to see it on a on a more regular basis. Uh, one of my friends was getting reports that uh, native people who were going down there to the beach up by uh, Bella Coola were running into these things on Saturday nights when they were down there doing campfires. These things would walk right past the campfire, yeah. and uh, well, not in close proximity, but they were you know close enough to be observed and and stuff like that. And as as Bob Titmus had discovered, uh, Thomas and uh, Chris Murphy came out with a brilliant book a number of years ago called The Sasquatch in British Columbia. And it is an amazing book of the rich history that pervades all of BC, from Vancouver Island right up to the Alaska Panhandle and right along the Alberta-BC border, you know. Uh, we have things here um, on, on the eastern side. Rene de Hinden investigated. It was on the Alberta side, but who's to say Sasquatch uh, knows about provincial boundaries, about the 15-footer that was seen at Nordegg, right, by the dam. And Native people that Winona's encountered have seen the same thing there. This thing is absolutely massive uh, in that particular area. And this is some uh, 41 years after that, or maybe 51 years now after the fact that there are things there that are that big. So, you know, and then Winona's had a bunch of encounters herself uh, in Alberta, which is the province next to us. But these things know no boundaries. They, they They could migrate between the provinces with quite... A large degree of anonymity. We afford so much natural shelter and cover to them. It's just amazing. And I'm thrilled to have lived here for these uh, past uh, 32 years. And uh, we're possibly the last year here. We're going to make the max of it this summer, COVID or no COVID. We're going to be moving around a fair bit. Wow. Now, you said that. Now, I'd heard that before, and I believe, Thomas, you're the one that told me about that. Uh, report of that one that was around 15 feet tall. Yeah, 1969, the big horn dam construction site. Five witnesses Mm -hmm. claimed this animal on the high ridge as they were building the water pumping station, and two of the men went up to where, after it moved off to where it was, and the men who stayed below were amazed that their friends were less than half the height of this figure that they had seen. Mm -hmm. That's when they came up with the estimation of 15 feet tall. But between 1948 in 1984, there was a whole rash of extreme tall sighting reports in around where the Bighorn Dam was built. I was, and what always fascinated me in Alberta was all these extreme height reports were in the same general area. They had reports of normal height, and what I say, what I mean by normal height, anything between six and eight feet tall at the same time. But what was really interesting, it was this whole rash of 12, 13, 14, 15 foot reports that occurred between 1948 and 1984. Uh, now, as far as I know, there hasn't been much in the extreme height report in, report in this area since 1984, but reports of normal height for a Sasquatch, eight, seven, six feet, have continued. 
Now it's possible there was a, there was a, there was a, a group of creatures that were extremely tall, lived out their lives, and have since passed on. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But it was so interesting that this extreme height reports were all within an 80-mile circle of this particular area, and they have since stopped. Right, right. In, in that area that you're talking about, uh, something that large uh, and with the amount of, of caloric intake and protein needed there would certainly be um, available the food source in that area. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Ronald Gamel, who uh, reported one crossing the highway right beside Abraham Lake, saw three individuals crossing the road from him. He said every damn one of them was about 12 feet tall. Good Lord. <laughs> well, you know, just and, uh, think, we don't know what's out there, you know, and un- untouched parts of our our land, I mean, it's just, it, it wouldn't surprise me, you know? It really wouldn't. Oh, it wouldn't surprise me. The one time in my life I think I got a good look at a Sasquatch, and I still won't say it was because it was too far away, it was massive. I just saw it crossing the cut line, in the center of the cut line to the trees on the right-hand side, and it was it only lasted about four seconds. But I think if I put a man up there, I'd barely be able to see him at all. I mean, uh this thing was huge, even for a Sasquatch. Wow. There are no surprises, but an unknown species like that, with special variety, etc., variation, and what have you, you know, 12 to 15 feet isn't uh, out of the, the, how should I say, not in the impossible category, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And Rene de Hinden went up there, and, and um, if there's a guy that was, Skeptical as well as being a, a Sasquatch investigator, it was Rene de Hinden. In mm-hmm. fact, he went up mm-hmm. there to investigate the thing and ended up staying there and working on that site the whole summer long just in case this thing showed up again. Isn't that right, Thomas? That is correct. The only reason why he left is the Bosford Cripple prints were found. That's and, right. Uh, finally, leaving there and going down to Bosford, Washington to, get, to participate in that whole circus that was going on down there. <laughs> Yeah, and and if Renee had been um, uh, unconvinced by what was going on up there by the Bighorn Dam near Nordegg, Renee would have turned around and said, see you later, suckers, thanks for wasting my time. But the fact Mm. that the eyewitness testimonies were that accurate, that honest, and uh, uh, their, their understanding of the lay of the land in that situation was extraordinarily good, he stayed there the whole summer. So that Nordic episode is diminished by a lot of people. But, you know, uh, as you can hear, Thomas and I hold that one in high regard because a personal friend of both of us, who is the most skeptical Bigfoot guy there ever was, you know, he'd sit up late at night, you know, killing himself over the Patterson film, Patterson Gimlin film, and uh, saying, man, you know, uh, is this real or is, it, is this not real? He knew damn well that it was real, but, you know, it just bugged him. He was that kind of a guy. For Rene to have stayed up there at Nordegg and uh, the the Bighorn Dam uh, meant that there was something going on. And it's one of the great stories of Sasquatch World that is not told very much except by a handful of us here in B.C. I consider the Bighorn Dam site uh, Alberta's most interesting encounter. I would corroborate that. I, I agree with you entirely. There are many good things, like the campground story that, that you investigated, but that one is absolutely paramount, I, w- I would say, without a doubt. 
Yeah, you guys are I, making me want to pack my bags and get up there. <laughs> you know, America's rich and abundant in these things, but um, it, it gets to the point where who do you believe, okay? I don't mean to sound like I'm poo-pooing people's signs and stuff like that, but, um, you know, I've been to places that, um, where everybody sees a Sasquatch, and it's not likely, considering how much human habitat is around the particular area, and and it's almost become like um, a, a religious thing. Somebody had a vision mm-hmm. of the Virgin Mary. Now everybody wants to have a, a vision of the Virgin Mary, and that's what happened in the Bigfoot world. You know, there's projection, there's hallucination, stuff like that, mistaken identity and what have you. I'm sure there are sincere mm-hmm. people who have seen something somewhere and have had the corroborating evidence of, oh, it saw it, they saw a Sasquatch, and they found the footprints where it had been right this sort of thing is terrific but snatches and glimpses of things moving in the woods especially in the dark they're very hard Mm -hmm. to corroborate and um i I wish that everybody who wanted to see a sasquatch could see one but renee and john green died after 50 years of searching for these things without ever having seen one grover krantz never saw one you know yeah like that you know Uh, that's a good point too because i'm always saying you know when i when I'm talking to somebody or I hear somebody talking about, well, you know, just about every time they step foot out of their truck at the edge of the forest, they're seeing Sasquatch. And I'm like, really? Because the people that you just mentioned indeed did not have an encounter, and they've spent countless times out in the woods or you know, going to where they had been reported and being in the thick of all this, and they didn't have one sighting. So no. – One of the great drawbacks of modern conveniences like the Internet, great tool that it is, it's also a soapbox for every St. Coyle salesman out there. I mean, uh, it used to be that when I I started, you almost had to pry information from a witness because they're very reluctant to talk. (laughs) Nowadays, with the Internet and stuff, especially in the U.S., I find that seeing Sasquatch, or Bigfoot, as you call it, down in the United States, has become trendy. And, oh, Lord uh, and that is causing a lot of problems. Yeah. Yeah, and then when yeah. you add the celebrities to the mix, right, you've got people oh, like God. Joe Rogan, Rob Lowe, Megan Fox, all these people becoming interested in the subject matter. It becomes trendy for the, uh, the, the non-Sasquatch, non-Bigfoot people to get involved in this and bring all kinds of whack-job, wrongful perspectives to this. <laughs> what we're looking for uh-huh. is a live, organic, North American uh, hominid uh, of, the, of the primate variety. We're not looking for stuff that walks through portals, transdimensionalizes oh, itself, shapes, uh, shifts, and that kind of crap. But this is what this kind of celebrity stuff has brought with it, a lack of discernment. And it's sad because, yes. you know, we're looking for something that's like us but not quite like us, and it's very much flesh and blood. Right, and I'll tell you, tell you what my perspective is, um, what what evidence and, um, like, the tracks that have been found, uh, the castings that have been taken, all of that stuff is actual physical evidence. There's no physical evidence that can prove a portal open and Bigfoot hopped out, okay? So, <laughs> exactly. I tend to go with the more scientific-based physical evidence 
evidentiary possibilities that this 14-inch print, barefoot print, mind you, was probably not made by an average human being. Precisely. Mm -hmm. I tell you this, um, we were, people like Thomas, myself, many of the other sane people here in BC will continue to do this in a lucid, conscious, and intelligent manner. And, um, you know, we don't get phased by what people are saying in other places or, or what they're doing in other places and claim-making. We've got the most <laughs> abundant area up here, thank you very much, and that's all we're going to focus on. That is exactly Absolutely. how both of us feel and a variety of other people we work with. Oh, absolutely, and um, it's good. It's refreshing to hear that there's still sane people out there that have shared interests as you guys do. Um, you know. Well, there's a lot of good research. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a lot more weird ones. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's the understatement the, of the century, mate. Yeah, yeah. Oh my I, God. I like heard me say it, Julie, a number of times, the Sasquatch field today more resembles an asylum that's being taken over by the inmates. Unfortunately, uh, more prominent. Oh, for heaven's sake. It sure does. And um, I, I think a lot of people just do that for attention, for whatever reason. And, and you know, that's them, whatever. But um, my main concern is, is just what are these things and how in the heck do they stay so elusive? You know, it drives me mad. So. Remember well, the rare, old adage. Go ahead, go ahead. The rarity and their elusiveness by nature is the biggest reason we still have a major mystery on our hands. Mm-hmm. I mean, and on top, of the, mm. on top of that, who wants to be harassed? I mean, human beings are the biggest stinkers on the planet anyway, and these things exactly. obviously have the sense intuition to realize uh, let's not be mucking around with these guys you know and uh, I if I was a Sasquatch I wouldn't want encounters with humans I, I wouldn't want to go back no. and tell the other Sasquatch tribe guess what I saw today you know <laughs> yeah I kind of like the thing that, that first nation symbol to the Sasquatch they encountered or the figure they encountered at the at the, at the gates of Sasquatch Park it was it was probably giving them the Sasquatch version of the bird and taking off. <laughs> <laughs> the Sasquatch middle that finger salute, is. yeah, pretty much. I would agree yeah. with that. <laughs> Dodge, we're getting right here to the end of the show here. Um, I think we'll end it with that because that's funny. I, I tell you what, John, we had a, a great show, and you bring so much to the table, and, you know, I appreciate you guys are doing up there. Um, you know, keep up the good work. It's your inspiration to all of us. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to you today, Julie. It's such a pleasure indeed. And anytime I'm hanging around with my old mate Thomas, it's always a time for good laughs, mm -hmm. common sense, and, you know, uh, chest beating. So, yeah, I've really enjoyed myself <laughs> today. Thank you for the opportunity, you two. You've been terrific. Great. Thank you so much. Very much appreciate you and coming Tom, on tonight, John. And Julie, I want you to remember the name. British Columbia Scientific Cryptozoological Club. I dare you to say that five times fast. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to Yeah, just look that. us up on the Internet. We have... Uh, 
we're, we're open to all sensible and, and commonsensical people. Thomas is mm-hmm. a member of our club. He conducts his research oh, independently, nice. but we use him for a resource, right? He's a good bloke. So, yeah, anybody who is interested in joining the BCSCC, look at us at bcscc.ca, and membership information is there. Awesome. Appreciate that. Well, guys, uh, it's been a great show, and Thomas, as always, um, <laughs> You always bring a colorful side to the Sasquatch story. So I want to thank all of our guests for joining us tonight. And we will be back again next month with another show. And we are going to try to get on another special guest. So we'll let you know who we have in store next time around. So, again, this is Julie. Thank you for listening to another episode of On the Shoulders of Giants with the one, the only, Thomas Steenberg. Radio.